Well, I thought I'd give you guys a little update this morning. Many of you have been uh, praying for Julie and I for a while now, so I thought I should update you. We had a couple doctor's appointments this week. Uh, many of you have been praying for my eye. If you don't know, about nine months ago, I lost most of my sight in my right eye. had a doctor's appointment this week, and it's about 50% better, which was a huge surprise. So, yes, that's very exciting. Uh, they're thinking that no more surgery will be needed, so that's, that's exciting. My eye's coming back to me, which is good, because I'm going to have two little babies to watch over here pretty soon. You may notice Julie's not here this morning. She is at home resting because we're about 35 and a half weeks into her pregnancy. So, uh, but we had a doctor's appointment and the twins are doing great. We're calling them Luke and Gracie, if you haven't heard. So anyways, here soon and in a few days or maybe a couple weeks, hopefully, uh, Julie and I will be heading to the hospital for the twins. We sure, sure appreciate you guys' prayer for them uh, and for their safe delivery. Well, uh, this morning we're looking at Galatians 3. We're continuing through the book of Galatians, so you can turn there if you'd like. Galatians three fifteen and following. So towards the end of my degree at seminary, I was taking a class one day, and they brought in a guest speaker. They brought in a guy from the alumni office at seminary, and they brought him in to speak to us about how to find a job after seminary, how to put together your resume to go find a job at a church. And I'll I'll be honest, I was kind of tuning the guy out. I wasn't paying a lot of attention because I had this gig lined up at, at Grace that I was really excited about, so I wasn't really paying much attention. But, but I perked up and I started listening when he said something very odd. He said, make sure that on your resume you do not include your GPA. And I, I thought about that, and I, and I sat up, and I thought, I, I, surely I didn't hear that right. So I, I start flipping through the handouts he'd given, a bunch of sample resumes of guys graduating from seminary, and one resume, two resume, three resumes, sure enough, none of them have GPAs on them. And, and I'm starting to get a little panicky, I'm starting to get a little nervous, it's not just me freaking out, the whole class is freaking out, all of us are thinking, well, what have we been doing for the last 20 years? You, you teachers, you professors have been prodding us to get good grades, to work hard, to build up this GPA, and now you're telling us to not include it on your, our resume? How can that be? And, and the guest speaker replied, I remember it to this day, don't include your GPA because outside of school, no one will ever care what grades you got. Now, some of you students are right now thinking, thank God Almighty <laughs> that after college, no one will care about my GPA. But for me, this was not good news. See, for 20 years, grade school, high school, undergrad, master's degree, I've been working incredibly hard to get good grades. I've been working and pushing myself to get a good GPA. I had a relatively good GPA. I was proud of it. I didn't want to give it up. The whole grade point average system was something I liked. It measured me. It showed me what I needed to do. It measured me against other people. And I generally came out well. It made me feel good about myself. The grade point average system gave me a reason for confidence and pride, and there was no way I was going to give that up without a fight. Okay, well, that's actually exactly what Paul's opponents, the Judaizers, are feeling as they listen to what Paul says in the book of Galatians. They're feeling that same struggle within them. A little bit of of review for you. Let's, Let's review. What is Paul saying in the book of Galatians? Well, first of all, he is teaching us that justification comes by faith alone. Justification in the sight of God, being declared right with God. That comes to us by faith alone. The works of the law play no part in that. We become part of God's family by faith alone. But that's not all Paul says. Not only do we get justification by faith alone, but also sanctification. Sanctification is our growth, our spiritual maturing as we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Paul's saying you grow in the Christian life not by doing the works of the law, but by faith. 
Faith is sufficient for both justification and sanctification. The beginning of our spiritual life, what we call justification, and the continuation and growth of our spiritual life, what we call sanctification, are by faith alone. The works of the law play absolutely no part in either. Well, to the Judaizers, that's not good news. See, the Judaizers are Jewish believers. They've accepted Jesus as their Savior, but they're not ready to give up the law yet. They don't want to give up the Jewish law because why? Because they're good at it. They've learned to obey the law reasonably well. Not perfectly, only Jesus could do that. But they can obey it better than any of us. And so the law is a reason for pride for them. The law makes them look better than the rest of us because they know how to keep it relatively well. The Judaizers don't want to give up the law. It makes them feel good about themselves. It's a source of pride in their lives compared to others. These opponents that Paul is speaking to in Galatians, they don't just have a theological commitment to the Mosaic law. They have an emotional commitment. They love it because it makes them feel good about themselves. So Paul knows these guys aren't going to give up the law without a fight. These guys are going to object to what he is teaching us in the book of Galatians. Now, in the ancient world, uh, there's a little bit of a challenge. Paul writes this letter. He sends it off to Galatia where it will be read when he is not present. He won't be in Galatia as this letter is read, and there's, there's no telephones, there's no teleconferencing in the ancient world. He can't call in and do a Q&A after the letter's read. Okay? He has no opportunity to do that. So Paul has to, to take time in his letter to imagine the objections that his opponents, these Judaizers, will have, and he has to answer them proactively. That's what Paul does in our passage this morning. It's a challenging passage, but it makes a lot more sense if you imagine that Paul is brainstorming, what are my opponents going to say? When I teach that justification and sanctification are by faith alone, they're going to raise their hands, they're going to stand up, and they're going to call out an objection. I need to cut it off ahead of time. I need to answer it ahead of time because I won't be there. I can't call in and answer their objection. Paul does it ahead of time. He's going to take our passage this morning and answer the two most serious objections that he can imagine his opponents will have. Two most serious objections to Paul's contention that we should set the law aside. Okay, first objection that Paul will answer is going to take us from verse 15 through verse 18. And to, to understand this objection, here's, I think, what's going on. Let's, let's review for a moment from last week. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Paul proved to us that justification in the sight of God comes by faith alone. And who did he put forward as an example? What man from the Old Testament did he push forward? Abraham. Abraham's always a good guy to look at. So Paul sets Abraham in front of us as proof that justification comes by faith alone, not by the works of the law. There's just one weakness to Paul's argument. Abraham lived before the law. When Abraham lived, the Mosaic law had not been given yet. And so Paul can imagine that as these Judaizers, his opponents, are listening to the letter and listening to Paul put Abraham forward, they're going to raise their hand and they're going to say, wait, Paul, sure, Abraham was justified by faith alone. We'll give you that because he lived before the law. But all of us live after the law, so we must obey it. Now, to understand what's going on here, a little bit of biblical history. Here's a simple timeline of the Bible You got creation in the fall, somewhere way in the past. You got God shows up and speaks to Abraham, gives him a covenant about 2000 BC. Then God shows up later, gives a Mosaic covenant, which includes the law, the Jewish law, about 1500 BC. Jesus shows up about 33, or dies on the cross about 33 AD. Well, here's here's the argument of Paul's objectors. They're saying a guy who lives here, after the time of Abraham, but before the Mosaic law, sure, he can be right with God by faith alone because there was no law. Mosaic law didn't exist yet. Sure, he's okay, but 
all of us live here. We live after the giving of the law. So to be right with God, faith is not enough. We must also obey the law. How is Paul going to answer that objection? That's a pretty good objection that they they level against Paul. Well, Paul is going to answer in the next few verses. He's going to start in verse 15. Read with me there. He says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, Paul's drawing an analogy here between the Abrahamic covenant and human covenants of the ancient world, Greek and Roman contracts. And Paul's point is a human covenant, a human contract can't be added to or modified or changed after it's been signed. After they've sealed it, after they've signed it, you can't change it later. Now, it's kind of a foreign idea to us. In our day and age, you get a good lawyer and you can get out of anything. But in the ancient world, that wasn't true. In the ancient world, even kings, even emperors were bound to follow the covenants that they made. Paul's point is simply, if human covenants can't be changed or modified or added to later, how in the world would we think that a divine covenant could be changed later? See, in the Abrahamic covenant, God showed up. And he made this incredible promise to bless Abraham and Abraham's descendants and indeed the entire world. That this blessing is justification in the gift of the Spirit. And when God made this promise, he attached no conditions to it. It was a simple promise, a simple unconditional promise. God will spiritually bless Abraham and his descendants in the whole world. Okay, but what the opponents of Paul are arguing, when they say that conditions have been added, they're suggesting that God has gone back on his word. That some 500 years later, God showed up and gave another covenant that changed what he had said earlier, that God has gone back on his word, that he's not faithful to his promise to bless unconditionally. Okay, Paul wants them to understand his point explicitly. Verse 17, what I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. In other words, you can't change a covenant later. If God promised to bless us simply by grace, without condition, he can't add conditions later. God can't do that. That violates the nature of a covenant. That would turn God into a liar. He can't do it. It also violates logic. That's the point of verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Paul wants us to understand, okay, these promises that come to us, these blessings of justification in the spirit, either they come by the gracious promise of God or they come by the works of the law. You can't have both. If it comes as a promise by grace, you can't add conditions to it. If you add conditions to grace, it's not grace anymore. You guys understand that? Grace is by definition unmerited favor of God. If you add conditions to grace, you're not being gracious. It's logically impossible. So the idea that that this Mosaic covenant could add conditions to the gracious promise of God is impossible. Violate the nature of covenants and the nature of logic. So Paul's point so far is that whether you live before the time of the law or after, you're blessed simply by faith alone. I think Paul's opponents would be willing to listen to his argument so far and say, okay, Paul, all right, we'll grant what you're saying for sons of Abraham. For us who are Jews, who are parties of the Abrahamic covenant, all of us are blessed by justification, by faith alone. All right, you've made your point. Whether we live before or after the law, just uh, one problem there, Paul. What about the Gentiles? What about the majority of us in this room who are not Jews? We're not participants in the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant wasn't made to us. It was made to Abraham 
and his descendants. What, what happens to us? Well, the Judaizers would say, well, for us, for us Gentiles, the only way to receive this blessing of justification is to become a Jew. We need to be circumcised and we need to obey the law. Well, Paul answers that objection in verse 16, which we skipped. Look back at verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. Now, theologically, this is one of the hardest verses in the Bible, very difficult verse, but it's actually very profound, very significant. Paul's point is simply this. Hey, hey, you Jews, hey, you Judaizers, you people who have Abraham's blood in your veins, guess what? Abrahamic covenant doesn't belong to you either. When God showed up and he made this promise to bless and he made it to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, God was actually only speaking to one child of Abraham, one son of Abraham. Who was that? Jesus. The Bible reveals to us that Jesus is what we might call the ultimate Jew. He he is the super Jew, the ultimate son of Abraham. He is the only Jew ever living to completely satisfy God's will for his life. And as a result, Jesus alone has received all of the blessings of the biblical covenants. Jesus Christ right now sits on his throne in heaven and in his lap are all the blessings, all the promises of the Old Testament covenants given to him because he is the ultimate Jew. So it's not enough to say that you have Abraham's blood in your veins. That doesn't get you there because there's only one descendant who merited the covenants. That's Jesus. The only way to be blessed by the covenant is how? To be united by faith to Jesus. The only way we can receive any blessings, Jew or Gentile, is to be united in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like when I was in college, after my sophomore year at A&M, I got a job in Dallas. My family didn't live in Dallas, so I needed a place to live. Fortunately, I had a very gracious friend in the dorm who, who uh, lived next to me, and he offered his house. His parents opened up their house to me. They gave me a room in their house, and that turned out really good for me because they lived in what all of us would call a mansion up in North Dallas. place rocked. I had this awesome, huge room. Not only that, but they liked to eat out a lot at fancy restaurants all through Dallas, and they brought me with them. I was eating steak and seafood like four nights a week. Not only that, but about two weeks into the summer, they said, hey, Blake, uh, just so you know, we're going to be gone for about 18 days because we're taking a trip to Israel. Why don't you just come with us? So I had to think about that for like a second. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Even if I have to quit my job, I don't care. I'm going. So I had this life-altering, incredible trip to Israel for 18 days that they paid for. Year later, they say, hey, come with us to Cozumel. Go scuba diving. Did it again a year later. I got to do all these incredible things. Had all these amazing blessings, not because I deserved them. Not even because I had their blood in my veins, because I was related to them. I, I got all these blessings because I was a friend of their son. Because I was united to their one true son, I got blessed. I got to share in all of his blessings. That's how the Christian life works. Paul is very clear throughout the entire New Testament. We are blessed all through Jesus Christ. Every good thing we receive in life comes to us through Jesus. We don't get anything from God that doesn't come through Jesus Christ. Everything good in my life comes to me because of my relationship with Jesus. So for the Jew who stands up before God and says, God, I'm right with you because I have Abraham's blood in my veins. God says, no way, bud. There was only one guy who was right with me by by blood and by obedience, and that's Jesus. The only way that you're right with me is if you are connected, related to my son Jesus by faith. Okay, so Paul, in this first objection, in this first response to the Judaizers, he's helping us understand that Jew and Gentile alike experience the same thing that Abraham did. 
Justification by faith alone. We are blessed by faith alone. There's no conditions of the law added to it because that would violate God's nature. It would turn God into a liar. We're blessed by faith alone in Jesus Christ because Jesus has received all of the blessings of the covenants which he now shares with us freely, which he shares with everyone who is united to him by faith. Okay, so, so Paul has answered what is probably the, the Judaizers' primary intellectual objection. And the rest of our passage this morning, he's going to answer what is probably their primary emotional objection. And I think the second objection that the Judaizers are going to have, I think they're going to stand up while Paul is, is, is speaking, while, while he, as this letter is being read. They're going to hear Paul say that the law should be set aside and they're going to stand up and they're going to have an emotional objection. They're going to say to the rest of the churches in Galatia, how can we even listen to a man who would set aside the law? Remember, who was the law given by? Who gave the law? God did. Where do you find the law? First five books of your Bible. It's in the Bible. The law is the word of God. It was given by God himself. The law had guided and directed the nation of Israel for 1,500 years. The law was the most important thing in a Jewish family. What is a Jewish parent's primary responsibility to their children? to give them the law, to raise them to know and obey the law. The law was central in the life and history of the Jewish people. It was given by God himself. And here Paul is dismissing it. He is setting it aside. He is disrespecting the law of God. How can you people even be listening to a man who would do that? I think that's the nature of the second objection the Judaizers would have. It's an emotional response. How can you even give the time of day to a man who would set aside the word of God, who would set aside the law. Well, that's a serious charge. If Paul is setting aside, if he is dismissing, if he is disrespecting the law, that's a big deal because God gave it. So Paul needs to answer that objection. So how's he going to do it? Well, um, Paul starts by not backing down. Paul's a pretty confrontational guy. He starts out in the rest of the passage by not backing down. He wants them to understand, yeah, uh, the law has some serious shortcomings, you guys. I'm going to be honest with you. Law is a gift from God, but it has some serious shortcomings. I want you to understand the shortcomings of the law. And so Paul starts going through them. He starts in verse 19. Look with me there. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Paul wants him to understand the law was given by God only for a limited time. The law by its very nature is temporary. It's not a permanent thing. The law was given until the time of the seed, the Messiah, until Jesus should come. The law was never meant to be an eternal thing. That's its first shortcoming. Second shortcoming is is there again in verse 19 and 20. It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Again, some pretty tough verses. What in the world's going on here? I think Paul is sharing the second shortcoming of the law. He's contrasting it with the Abrahamic covenant. How was the Abrahamic covenant given? Well, directly. God showed up and spoke to Abraham directly. And then Abraham turned around and worshiped God directly. When you read the Abrahamic covenant account, it's characterized by intimacy and closeness with God. God speaking directly to Abraham. Abraham responding directly to God. In fact, in Genesis 18, God shows up and has dinner with Abraham. It's this really cool account. They have dinner together. The whole covenant's characterized by intimacy with God. But what about the Mosaic covenant? It's characterized by distance from God. It wasn't given directly by God to the people. It was given by God through angels, through Moses to the people. There's all these mediators in the way. 
More than that, if you look at the history under the Mosaic Covenant, it's characterized by distance. Not everyone gets to hang out with God. Only a select few can go into the temple. Only a smaller number can go into the Holy of Holies. Actually, only one guy at a time, only one day of the year, and he has to do all these ceremonies to get into God's presence. The whole law is characterized by distance between God and his people. That's the second shortcoming of the law. It doesn't bring intimacy with God. It brings distance. All these mediators are required between God and his people. Finally, third shortcoming that Paul raises for us is verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. This is the most serious shortcoming of the law in the Old Testament. It couldn't give us life. We talked about that last week. What does the law bring to all of us? If we live under the law, what does it bring us? We learned last week. The curse of God. All of us fall short of the law. None of us can live up to the perfect standard of the law. There's only one who did, Jesus. He, he earned life. He earned blessing through the law. All of us fall short. And as a result, all we earn from the law is curse, is death. That's what the law brings. It can't bring us life because we are sinners. All the law can do is condemn us. Paul wants his audience to understand, yeah, there's some real shortcomings with the law. Even though you love the law, even though the law was given by God, it has serious shortcomings. And yet, Paul will spend the rest of the passage reminding them, he doesn't hate it. The law is not a bad thing. Paul doesn't disrespect the law. Paul actually loves the law. He values the law. He views the law as a profoundly good thing, as a gracious gift from God. He'll prove that in the rest of our passage. How is the law a good thing? Well, three awesome things that the law accomplishes. Three great reasons why God gave the law. Reason number one is actually back in verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions or literally to point out transgressions. Okay, sin has existed since the Garden of Eden. We've been sinning for a long time. But, but before the law, we didn't actually know what sin was. Human beings sinned, but they didn't know it because God hadn't yet told them what constituted sin. They also didn't know what the consequences were. If I sin, what will happen? Don't know because God hasn't told me yet. The law is a gracious gift because it actually pointed out, it identified sin and revealed its consequences. Okay, before the law, human beings were living in the dark. What does God expect of me? I don't know for sure. But then the law comes and it says, here's what he expects in detail, A, B, C, D, E, F. And here will be the consequences if you don't obey. The law is a gracious gift because it teaches us what sin is and what consequences it brings. That's the first good thing that the law does for us. It is a good gift from God. Verse 22 tells us the next thing that the law does for us that's good. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. By scripture there, Paul's talking about the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he says that the scripture shuts up all of us, all of humanity in the prison house of sin. What Paul's telling us is not only does the Bible reveal what sin is, but the Bible also reveals that all of us are sinners. The Bible reveals that all of us have fallen short. We've talked about that. The law is, is when you look in the Bible, the law is really like a, a really strict police officer, judge, and jailer all in one. Guess what the law does? So when you sin, when you blow it, uh, what the law does is it, is it comes and arrests you, and it takes you before the law court of God, and it charges you as a sinner, and it declares you guilty, and then it takes you and throws you in the jail of condemnation, and it throws away the key. 
The law is an incredibly strict judge, so strict that it has condemned every human being who's ever lived except one, Jesus. All the rest of us have been locked in the prison of sin by the law. The law has locked us in this prison where we are confined under the penalty and power of sin and we can't escape it. This is a judge who can't be bribed. This is a judge who we can't persuade through good behavior. The law condemns all of us and keeps us in the prison house of sin from which there is only one escape. Here's why this is a good thing. Read the rest of the verse with me. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That the law condemns us, that the law is an infinitely strict judge is actually a really, really good thing because it leads us to faith in Christ. The law takes away all of our other options. Can I get to God by church attendance? The law says, no way, bro. Can I get to God through good works? The law says, no way, because you're still a sinner. You fall way short. Can I get to God through other religions? The law says, no, none of them measure up. The law leaves me absolutely no recourse for salvation, but to turn to Christ in faith. The, The law, if you look at it biblically, the law is really the perfect preparation for the gospel. The law isn't the gospel. It's bad news. Gospel means good news. Law is really, really bad news. It says you have absolutely no hope. There's absolutely nothing you can do. You will be condemned. You will die eternally. The law puts us on our face before God so that we cry out to God, God, save me. I can't do it. Save me. We are ready to respond in faith to the gift of Jesus Christ. Okay, that, that actually helps with, with one of the questions that I got most frequently back during our James 2 talk. A lot of people brought up the Sermon on the Mount. I said, Blake, what about the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus shows up and he talks about all these things that we need to do, these these laws. Don't they imply that that to be right with Jesus, we need to do these things? Well, I want to take you to the Sermon on the Mount. I want to help you see it a little differently. If you want, you can turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 or chapters 5 through 7. We're going to look particularly at chapter 7. I want to show you and answer kind of the most common question that I got a couple weeks ago. Okay, people looked at Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. Here's what they read. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. People look at that and they say, okay, well, to to get in heaven, faith alone is not enough. We also have to obey. Our faith will either be expressed in our obedience or will be kept by obedience. We must obey. Is that what this passage is saying? Well, no, because a Sermon on the Mount is not about the gospel. Sermon on the Mount is about the law. The Sermon on the Mount is preparation for the gospel. You got to remember, who is Jesus speaking to? When he shows up on earth and he's speaking to Jews, he's delivering the Sermon on the Mount. Who is his audience? Well, it's It's Jewish people who believed they were right with God. How? By their works. They believed that by by virtue of the blood flowing through their veins and by their obedience to the law, they believed that they were already right with God. These people didn't want to hear the gospel. They didn't think that they needed salvation. They thought they were already right with God by obeying the law. And so Jesus shows up and what does he tell them? Tells them, well, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, If you even have hatred for your brother, you've committed murder. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even have lust for a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. 
Jesus shows up and speaks to an audience who thought they were right with God through their works, who thought they were pretty darn good. He shows up and he says, you want to get there by the law? You want to be right with God by works? Let me tell you how good you have to be. Matthew 5, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If you want to get into this thing by works, if you want to do this by works, here's the standard. It's absolute perfection. Okay, that's the point that Jesus is making in the passage we read. Chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, he's speaking to people who think they're going to get in through their works. They're going to knock on the door of heaven and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, look at all that we did. We did miracles. We cast out demons. We did all these good things for your name. We were in five Bible studies. We attended church every week. We gave to the poor. We did all these things. And Jesus says what? Depart from me, you who practice wickedness. If you're trying to get in here by your works, guess what? Game over. You didn't make it. You are wicked because the law calls you condemned. You tried to do it by the law. You tried to do it by, their, by your works and you fell short. Sermon on the Mount isn't about us getting into heaven or proving that we deserve heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is about putting us on our face before God, crying out in desperation, God save me. The Sermon on the Mount is for those who are not yet believers, who think that they're right with God through what they do. The Sermon on the Mount leaves them no recourse but to fall on their knees in desperation before God. That's why Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount. He wanted his audience to get on their knees before him and say, Jesus, give us hope. We're desperate for you. Unfortunately, they didn't. They heard his message and they said, yeah, we're not buying that. We really think we're pretty okay. Okay, but that's the answer to the Sermon on the Mount. That's the point that Paul's making in Galatians 3. The law isn't here to save us. The law is here to leave us no other recourse but to turn to Christ in faith. It takes away every other possible option to be right with God. All we can do is get on our knees before God and cry out, God, save me. That's what the law does. It prepares us for the gospel. Third good thing that the law does, we find towards the end of our passage, verses 23 and 24. Paul says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, this this word tutor that you see in the NAS, that's not the best translation. Newer translations like the ESV get it right. It's not the sense of a tutor. A tutor teaches you. It's the sense of a nanny. Or, or, or a disciplinarian. It's, it's the word pedagogue in Greek. A pedagogue was a slave in a rich household who the master put in charge of his young son. The pedagogue would watch over the son from the age of six to, to about puberty. And that pedagogue wasn't there to teach the son. He was there to restrain and discipline the son. They, they believed that children needed restraint in the ancient world. They needed discipline. A child couldn't make wise choices. So you needed to watch over and restrain and hold him down, keep him from running off into the evils of the world. And so this pedagogue restrained and disciplined the child like a really strict nanny. And Paul's point is the law is good because it served as a nanny to Israel. In the Old Testament, Israel needed a nanny to restrain them, to restrict them, to discipline them when they went astray until their Messiah should come. Paul's looking at the Old Testament as a time of Israel's immaturity. They were like kids in the Old Testament. They didn't yet have the Messiah. They didn't yet have the Spirit of God living within them. They needed a nanny, something from the outside that held them down, that restrained them, that drew boundaries around what they could do and disciplined them when they went outside the boundaries. That's what the law did. It was a nanny to Israel in the Old Testament. So the law is a profoundly good thing. 
It served incredibly good purposes. But notice, for those of us who are united to Christ in faith, none of these purposes still apply. And that's Paul's application. Look at verse 25. He draws the application from the passage. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a nanny. Now that faith in Christ has come, we don't need to live under a nanny any longer. We, we don't need the law. We don't need this external disciplinarian that draws boundaries around our lives and disciplines us when we go astray. We don't need that anymore because God has replaced the nanny. I want to give you a preview. It's, it's always weird when you cover a book of scripture like a piece at a time. It's never meant for that way. You were supposed to read the whole book of Galatians at once. So it's kind of artificial what we're doing. But I'm going to give you a preview. We're going to look ahead to something we're going to study in about a month, month and a half. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16, Paul reveals to us that the nanny has been replaced for those of us who rely in faith upon Jesus Christ. He says in verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the spirit. Something huge happened the moment that we trusted in Christ as our savior. God himself came to live within us. All of us who've trusted in Jesus as our Savior, we have God in us, living in us. We don't need the law. We don't need a nanny telling us what to do. We have God in us leading us. To walk by the Spirit, as we'll learn later, means to be led by the Spirit, to be guided and empowered by the Spirit. When we're dependent upon the Spirit of God to lead us, He leads us towards righteousness and love and joy and peace and patience. He leads us towards all of these good things. We don't need the law to discipline us and restrain us because we have God living in us. Problem is, for some people, it's hard to give up the law. It was like me with my GPA. Now I live in a world where I have freedom from GPAs kind of nice. I I like it now. At first, I didn't like it because my GPA made me feel good about myself. It made me look good compared to other people. I wanted to hold on to it. Same thing with the Judaizers. They don't want to give up the law. They could be living in the freedom of the spirit, but they don't want to give up the law because the law makes them feel good about themselves. They go to bed at night being able to say, I kept all these commands. Therefore, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty cool and I'm better than you. The law gave them a cause for pride, so they hold on to it. I believe that that's a temptation for all of us. Now, for us, we're, we're not, I don't think, tempted to follow the Jewish law, <laughs> the Torah. I don't think any of you are trying to follow that. It's pretty hard. <laughs> I think for us, we create our own list of rules and regulations. We, we like to be people of lists. We create lists of things, just not, not the Jewish law, our own law. A list of rules and regulations that guide our lives, by which we evaluate our lives. For, for most of us, our lists are going to vary from person to person. For most of us, our lists are going to include some black and white commands. I shouldn't steal, kill, lie, gossip. I shouldn't do those things. That's true. So I, I put those things on my list. It's also going to probably include some gray area commands. I, I feel like the Lord has led me towards certain convictions. So I won't drink, smoke, dance, watch R-rated movies, work on Sunday. I'll send my kids to Christian school. I'll give at least 10% of my income. I have all kinds of gray area commands, places where the Bible hasn't clearly told me what I need to do, but I feel convictions there. For some people on their list, they just have good practices. I'll, I'll be in at least two Bible studies every semester. I'll have at least a 30-minute quiet time. I'll serve at least an hour at the church. Just have all kinds of things on their, on their list. Now, notice there's, there's nothing here on the list that's necessarily bad. 
Those black and white commands, those are always good commands. We, we really should not steal or kill or, or commit adultery or any of those things. Those are always good commands. And, and even the gray areas, if you have received conviction from the Lord about those, if he's convicted you that you shouldn't watch R-rated movies, then you shouldn't. That's, that's a conviction from him. None of these things are bad. The, the commands that we put on our list are not a problem. The problem is that we have a list at all. The problem comes when I reduce my spiritual life to keeping a checklist. Problem comes when I take my spiritual life and I turn it into a list of things I must do and things I must not do and I evaluate myself and I evaluate other people compared to how they keep the list. When I reduce my spiritual life to keeping a list, even if the commands are good, but it, comes, it becomes about keeping the list, then I will always be spiritually immature. That was the Judaizers. They were spiritually immature because they were too busy focusing on keeping the list to hear from the Holy Spirit. They couldn't walk by the Spirit. They're, they're being dominated by the list. The list is what leads them. The list is what runs their lives, not the Spirit of God. Now, I've seen that same progress in the course of my life. When I arrived at A&M, my first couple years, I lived in, in the dorms, lived in Dunn Hall my first year. And I remember distinctly, I, I'm a night showerer. I, I like to take showers at night, just a, a thing for me. And, and I would get in the shower and turn the water on hot and I would evaluate my day. And I would take my day and I would compare it to my list because I was a list follower when I got to college. I was master of the list. I had a great list and I would compare my day to my list and my list contained spiritual things like, did I have a long enough quiet time? Did I do my Bible study today? Did I avoid A, B, and C and do X, Y, and Z? I'd evaluate my day compared to the spiritual parts of my list. And then I'd move on to the academic portions of my list. Did I finish my homework? Did I get at least an A on that test? Blah, blah, blah. Then I'd move on to the physical part of my list. Did I eat well? Did I exercise at least 30 minutes? I'd evaluate my whole day compared to this huge list that I had. And if If I'd done well, then I'd walk out of the shower feeling pretty darn confident in myself, pretty great about myself, pretty prideful because I got more done than the rest of the guys living in Dunn Hall. If instead I had a bad day and I don't have a lot of checks next to my list, then I'd walk out of the shower feeling pretty depressed, pretty discouraged, pretty worthless because I didn't measure up to my list. Now notice, evaluating your day isn't necessarily a bad thing. And all of the things I had on my list are good things. It's good to have quiet times. It's good to study your Bible. It's good to eat well and exercise. All those things are good things. The problem is I had reduced my life to keeping a list and that dominated me. It turned my life into either pride or despair. Pride if I looked better than you, despair if I didn't. Pride if I kept my list, despair if I didn't. Nowadays, the Lord has led me to kind of a new phase of my spiritual life. I still take showers at night. Still get in, turn on the water hot and think about my day. But now, instead of turning my eyes to a list, I turn my eyes to the Lord. Turn my eyes to the Lord and I think, okay, Lord, let me look back at my day and look for things that I should be thankful for. What did you do for me today? And I'll I'll list off my thankfulness to him. And then I'll turn to my day and I'll say, Lord, where did I blow it today? Let me confess those things to you. I'll confess my sins to him. And then I'll turn to him and I'll ask him, Lord, what are the lessons that you wanted to teach me today? Please help me to learn from those. And I'll turn to him, Lord, please help me to do better tomorrow. Please help me to walk more faithfully by your spirit tomorrow. Now when I get out of the shower, I don't feel either pride or despair. I feel a simple, humble joy. If I had a bad day, guess what? I can walk out of the shower feeling joyful because I've confessed my sins and just as the water cleansed my body, so God has cleansed me of that sin. I walk out of the shower completely clean in his sight. That's a joyful thing. If I had an awesome day, I walk out of the shower humble because I just listed off all the ways that God blessed me. 
Everything good in my life becomes through Jesus Christ. I don't bring anything to the table. Can you see the difference? The commands are the same, both when I was in college and now. I shouldn't kill people, shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't do all these bad things. I should have a quiet time. I should go to Bible study. All those same commands are there. The question is, do I live by the list or do I walk by the Spirit? That's really what Paul wants to challenge us with today. He wants us to be introspective and look at our lives. Are we living life by the list? If we do, if we're living by a list, if we reduced our spiritual life to keeping a list of commands and evaluating ourselves and comparing ourselves to other people about how we keep the list, then what will come of that? Well, not joy, not peace, not freedom. Now, what'll come first of all is obligation. You'll do the things that God wants you to do, not because you love God, but because you want to keep your list because you're obligated to the list. Second, comparison. List breed comparison. I compare myself to you. I compare myself to other people. If I compare well, it brings pride. If I compare poorly, it brings despair. A list does not bring joy. It brings slavery. God doesn't want you to live under a list. He doesn't want you to reduce the beautiful, wonderful, infinite life that he gives you to something as small as a list. That's a small life. That's an immature life. God wants you instead to walk by the Spirit. To live under the leadership of the Spirit. The leadership of the Spirit will lead you, sure enough, not to kill people, not to commit adultery, not to lie. He'll lead you in the right direction, but not for the sake of a list, but for the sake of the love of God. If your life is about being led by the Spirit, looking to the Lord, turning to the Lord, not to a list, then the Spirit will produce in you motivations of love and joy and peace and patience. We'll see that when we get to Galatians 5. Walking by the Spirit is not a life of obligation. It's a life of joy under the love of God. We obey because we want to obey because God is expressing his love through us. That's life. That's maturity. Not keeping a list. Walking under the leadership of the Spirit. That's maturity. So I want to challenge all of you this week. Obviously, we're going to talk more about these themes as we continue through the book of Galatians. But this week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a little time in prayer and reflection before the Lord. And I want you to ask the Lord, God, where are the lists in my life? Where have I boiled my spiritual life down to lists? Where are the lists by which I compare myself to others, either for the sake of pride or despair? Where are the lists by which I evaluate myself, either to feel good about myself or bad about myself? God, show me the lists in my life that I need to let go of. Show me the lists that are turning my eyes off of your spirit and putting them into something so small and so domineering. God, help me to see and let go of the lists in my life and instead follow your spirit. That's the prayer this week. I believe that if you'll turn to the Lord and ask him that, he'll show you, he'll help you to see where you've reduced your life to lists. He'll help free you of that so that you can walk in the freedom and joy of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for exactly that. Lord God, we praise you and thank you from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, that you have called us to lives of freedom and joy and love following the leadership of your spirit. You do not want us to reduce the beauty of this life you've given us to the mastery of a list. I pray, Father, for all of us in this room that we would let go of our lists. I pray that we would be self-aware enough to see where we've reduced life to our lists. I pray that you would expose these lists that we've made, Lord, and that you would help us to move beyond the lists to not look at these lists by which we evaluate ourselves and others, but instead to look to you. I pray that that would be the, the, the characteristic of our spiritual lives, continually looking to you, looking to Jesus, seeking to live up to Jesus, not to a list. 
I pray, Lord, that you would help us. I pray that your spirit would convict us, guide us, fill us, strengthen us, empower us to live in the freedom and maturity of walking by the spirit. Help us as a congregation to grow, Lord, to be people of your spirit, not people of lists. Help us to walk with you faithfully, Lord, out of love and joy. Thank you so much for the gift of your son who makes all of that possible. We confess, Lord, that everything good in our lives, everything wonderful, everything remarkable, every good thing is from Jesus. We bring nothing to the table. You bring it all, Lord, and you bring it all to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for him and for what he did for us in his death and resurrection. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you, and walk by the Spirit this week.